Did you get Emma? Did you get Emma? Did you, did you, did you, huh? Whoa, whoa. Calm down, little lady. No. What did you get? Something very close, exactly along those lines. A Clint Eastwood, Lee Marvin, shoot em up western. So prepare yourself for the bloody mayhem and unholy carnage of Joshua Logan's Paint Your Wagon. With blood, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Paint our wagon, gonna paint it good. We ain't bragging, we're gonna coat that wood. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke comes from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me, as always, is the partner to my Ben, to my Elizabeth. <laughs> I read that one. Yeah. Is the partner to my Ben, to my Elizabeth, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you feeling today? Great. Uh, like a singing, dancing cowboy. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. There aren't a lot of yeehaws in this movie. No, not. Th- th- there certainly not wasn't, Nate. No, there definitely, definitely was not. Today, we are talking about the 1969 musical film, Paint Your Wagon. Yes, yes, it is a real movie, which you might remember from such Simpson episodes as season nine's All Singing, All Dancing. They're singing! They're singing, Marge! Why aren't they killing each other? Yeah, their guns are right there. Wait, wait, wait. Here comes Lee Marvin. Thank God. He's always drunk and violent. So yeah, let's let's address the elephant in the room. Uh, both of us, well, until very recently, I would say, did not realize that Paint Your Wagon was not just a really clever Simpsons joke. This is an honest-to-goodness, real-ass musical starring Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin. Man, what the hell is going on in my town? And it is a western, and it is called Paint Your Wagon, but unfortunately, this song features nowhere in the show. Gonna paint your wagon, gonna paint it fine. Gonna use oil-based paint, cause the wood is pine. On the rails of pine! So there we have it. Fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know how. It depends on how you look at it, I guess. Uh, This is one of those instances where rather than the Simpsons writers doing a sound-alike of a song from the show, they just did whatever they wanted and wrote a totally original number uh, that is, not to spoil anything, infinitely better than anything in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it sort of speaks to the fact that they didn't give it a chip at this movie. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, I mean, uh, in the commentary, you can hear David Merkin talk a little bit about Paint Your Wagon. And uh, yeah, this is pretty much a an ode to how much all of the writers apparently hate this movie um, and what a flop it was, basically. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, he even talks about this book, which I actually read the chapter on Paint Your Wagon. Uh, the book is called Fiasco, A History of Hollywood's Iconic Flops by James Robert Parrish. And so as soon as I heard him talk about that, I had to read the whole backstory on this movie. But yeah, essentially it was a giant flop, hated by many, and I love like Homer and Bart's reaction to it in this scene where they just, it just cuts back to them and they have 
gaping mouths open, which is pretty much what my reaction was when I found out that this movie was a real thing. Yeah, same here. I actually, I just before we started recording, I rewatched the whole episode, which I had forgot how good it is. I mean, these yeah, for a clip show, uh, it's really good. Yeah, they did. The wraparounds are very clever. The two things I really want to shout out about this episode specifically is one, I, we sort of addressed this in the the My Fair Lady episode with Michael Price. The cast are all phenomenal singers, and it's insane that they not only are phenomenal singers but also are phenomenal singers by doing the voice of their Simpsons characters who yeah. maybe have voices that don't necessarily lend themselves to beautiful singing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that really sort of stood out is just like what a good singer Yardley Smith is in this episode. Like, I mean, she's also like the one actor on the Simpsons who basically doesn't do a voice. Like Lisa's voice Sounds is just exactly like, like Lisa. yeah, it's like a slightly yeah. pitched up higher childlike version of her own voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when she sings, she sounds like phenomenal. She's such yeah. a good singer. Um, and you really hear that in this episode. There's a couple of moments. And the other thing I really want to shout out, and this is maybe a weird thing to notice, but like the choreography is really good. There's a part where Bart basically goes on about how he hates to sing and dance. And that's really more of a Millhouse thing. But the animators like animate this really beautiful like move that Bart does. It's kind of like Fosse inspired. It's I don't know. It's hard to describe, but it's excellent. And it's funny because, of course, Bart also took ballet in an episode. And, you know, he's proven himself to be actually quite the adept little dancer. But um, yeah, those are the sort of two things that I noticed that I absolutely had to call it On, on top of the fact that it's just like this is a really clever way of doing a clip show of being like, hey, we've done a bunch of these musical parodies like what if we do a clip show that's entirely based around those and then all of our wraparound segments will just write brand new songs. So Right. Yeah, totally. Now, I, the thing I love about this is just in that opening clip when they're watching the movie, it's nothing like what Paint Your Wagon is like. It basically is a man with no name movie. Right. right. It's like, yeah, it's like Clint Eastwood Clint is wearing earlier spaghetti westerns. He's wearing the poncho and Lee Van Cleef is there and he's in two of those movies. Um, and Lee Van Cleef is not in this movie, sadly. There's a real <laughs> lack of Lee Van Cleef. Yeah, it probably would have improved it. Uh, Lee Van Cleef improves everything. As far Certainly as couldn't have made it any worse. Um, <laughs> I do also really like that when they do the Lee Marvin, whoever, I don't know who's doing the yeah. Lee Marvin impression. but it's a, a droopy dog sort of thing going on. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's pretty funny. But it isn't that far off from when he sings Wandering Star later in the movie. I was going to say, get the singing it, is the part where it's most dead on, where it's yeah, like that sort very of good. like mumbling, I don't even know what. Oh, what a movie. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's just get into it. All right. Because, oh boy. Uh, yeah, great. Okay, well, okay. so Adam, Adam, to start, uh huh. how would you sum up this movie in a sentence? It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Uh, that's a bunch a of, that's a word, come on. Okay, you're right. A bunch of horny cowboys, um, <laughs> sing some songs totally unrelated to the plot, and then... Uh, at the end, a bull falls into some tunnels. I don't, I don't know. Like, there's no, you didn't even mention the thruple. Oh yeah, and there's a there's a subplot of thruppling, and I don't know, Nate. This movie blows. Like, I just, <laughs> I kind of, I kind of enjoyed it in a perverse kind of way. Yeah, well, we, yeah, okay. It's well, so let's. We have bonkers. to say this is also a learner and low musical. Right. So yes. from the people who brought us My Fair Lady, we'll get into it. But this is. Like, Lerner actually gets, like, creative control over this yeah. movie. 
Yeah, and, like, which is it way more than he had over My Fair Lady. So, yeah, well, that, that was a mistake. Something. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so you know, My Fair Lady, I went into it with trepidation, three and a half hours long. I'm kind of dreading it, and I ended up, as it turns out, quite enjoying myself. Uh, but going into this, knowing it was a Learner and Low show, which I'm not the biggest fan of yeah. those, sort of like that golden era of musicals. And it's a Western, which you're a big fan of. I've never been particularly fond of. Didn't go into this one with high expectations. And needless to say, they were more than met. This is not a good movie. Uh, It's not a good movie. It's not a good musical. I wouldn't disagree with you there. It's definitely not a good movie. (laughs) I'm so sorry we put our audience through this. But let's get into it. It'll be fun to talk about. It will be fun to talk about. There's lots to unpack here. Okay. Well, so let's start with a summary. This is my first time seeing this summary. Adam found it this week, but I'm going to read it ice cold and see what happens. Yeah, So so for a little bit of context, I don't know if we've talked about this yet. Mm -hmm. Probably not, but... I guess it was like the 1960s, 1970s, you know, cast albums of musicals were very, very popular. And usually, you know, if you think about like the big musicals, they were probably like a double LP set. They were probably pretty costly. So what ended up happening a lot of the times was there were these budget labels that would put out sort of knockoff recordings. I am a collector of knockoff recordings of Jesus Christ Superstar because they were famously like hundreds of these I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, really no, funny. like, and it's really weird because, like, at, at least in the case of Jesus Christ Superstar, the reason I collect them is because they're such a mixed bag. Usually the singers are not particularly good, but the orchestrations can be kind of, like, interesting. Mm-hmm. So anyway, one of the labels that puts these out, believe it or not, was Hallmark. Yes, huh. the greeting card company. And so what I ended up finding was... What purports to be the soundtrack to the film of Paint Your Wagon, but it's actually the Hallmark budget recording. Wow. So it's not anybody from the film involved in it, but it's like basically they hire session musicians and session singers to do their best, like Lee Marvin impression. Anyway, so <laughs> this is the summary of the film that is on the back of this recording from, like, I guess it would be like probably like 1970. Love so. It. Take it away, Nate. I think you're going to enjoy this. All right. With a cast led by Lee Marvin, Clint Eastwood, and Gene Seberg, scenes set against the background of the California gold rush at the middle of the last century, a hatful of hit tunes, including chart topper Wandering Star, Add Jealousy and Love, Bigamy and Polyandry, and you you cannot help but have a cast iron, 100% 24-carat, genuine winner, a musical that will become a standard for all times. No, it won't. <laughs> no. It's true. They, they really went hard on this, like, you know, it's a it was the gold rush of 1952, all that sort of shit about how great this musical was. Didn't even do that well on Broadway. No. Anyway. No, it sure didn't. Uh, ben Rumson, a wandering, wandering, whiskey-soaking wilderness seeker uh, and partner, a fresh farmer from Michigan. Okay. <laughs> Despite the similarity of their characters, somehow find themselves teamed together in a riotous search for gold. They find gold, but no women. (laughs) Oh boy. A Mormon arrives with two wives. Yeah, that does happen. Which seems distinctly unfair. Result? (laughs) Who wrote this? Result, (laughs) semicolon. The Mormon finds himself with one wife. And his second wife, Elizabeth, finds herself with two husbands, Ben and partner. No way! Yeah, thruple. 
Uh, all goes well for a while until the gold runs out. A party of God-fearing Easterners hits town, and Elizabeth suddenly decides to become respectable. So, exit Ben, then partner from the strange menage a trois. Ben to seek a new wilderness and partner uh, to grieve for his beloved Elizabeth. However, all ends well. Ben finds this new wilderness, and partner returns to settle down with his Elizabeth. Sorry for all the typos, but that was like the really bad OCR from this very badly scanned oh, okay. LP from. Got but it. yeah, I, mean, I should have cleaned it up. But it was a, yeah, it was a bit of a choose your own adventure. But that was, yeah, that was fun. exactly I like that. The uh, um, that's, that's actually a, you know what, considering how absolutely hard to follow this movie is, that's actually a pretty good summary of what happens. Yeah, no, I was really when I read it, I was like, okay, cool, that's what the movie was about because I really struggled to well, remember. That's the problem is that like a lot of stuff happens, but it's really hard to figure out what the movie is about. Yes, you know, there's so many plots going on all at once. There's sort of like the rise and fall of this town. There's like this sort of love triangle going on. There's this plot. They did actually they didn't really mention. The whole scheme that happens in the second half. Of yeah, the, the bizarre scheme, um, which just kind of comes out of nowhere. But we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Right? Oh, and so- then we should also note that then there's also just like a bunch of songs in this musical that have absolutely right. nothing to do with the plot, which is. Yeah, they're pretty extraneous and uh, not particularly well performed either. Um, so, all right, let's back up and talk. About yeah. Some of the background. OK, so Nate. This is interesting. Like, explain how the hell we got here. Okay, so I, I, this is actually pretty interesting. So, okay, some context. The era that this movie was made is really important to understanding what the hell is going on here. So, okay, it's nineteen sixty nine. Nineteen sixty nine. Okay, so end of the sixties, turn of the seventies. Yeah, the audience for films is narrowing and getting choosier. Okay, so at the beginning of this decade. 40 million moviegoers came to theaters in a week, every week. Wow. And that dropped to 17.5 million in 1969. So it wow. halved. The movie-going audience halved in this decade. Right, because right, I guess at this point, like, television is becoming more and more ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. It's moving on from just being, like, the variety shows and, like, the translation of, like, radio programs to, like, actual sitcoms and television series and dramas so like frankly what we're sort of seeing happening again right now of like people are deciding you know what like it's better to stay home and watch something on tv than go and spend money to go to the movies right right exactly and so that means that you have all these studios they're getting a little bit more desperate right and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of turnover right before this is all happening where previous studio heads and stuff are, are switching over including at paramount which is who produced this film so Robert Evans, right, who's now mm. he's the new person coming into Paramount. I'm Bob Evans. I'm the new head of Paramount. <laughs> yeah. He says around this time, I thought this summed it up nicely. Today, people go to see a movie. They no longer go to the movies. Mm. Right. Which that, I think that captures part of what's happening in terms of audience behavior is people are really choosing to go to a specific movie or not. Right. Right. That's the choice. It's not you go to the movies and then you figure out what you're going to watch. And Which so, is, again, an interesting parallel to today. Because totally. what was I listening to? Something, I was listening to some podcast or something, and they were basically saying the same thing of, like, the era of the sort of 80s and early 90s of, like, people go to the movies. Yeah. But now they go to a movie. Like, it's no longer you go to the mall 
like we even did this when we were in high school. Sure. Is like we'll just go to the movies on Friday night, whatever we can get into, that's what we'll go see. Yep. Versus now, it's like no, I'm actively choosing to go see the new Ant Man movie or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, totally. And so there's so many times now where I, you know, I love going to the movies and I love going to like seeing it in theater. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of weeks where I look at the box office and I'm like, I don't want to see any of this crap. So yeah. like, it's tough. Um, the other piece of context is more on the musical movie side. So this was kind of part of a wave of musicals because like the movie musical has kind of, you know, ebbed and flowed in terms of its popularity. Right. And what happened was there was a real lull, I think, kind of in the late 50s, early 60s. Right. And then what happens is the sound of music comes along and ah. it, and it's an absolute blockbuster. It had the largest box office gross in history at the time, $112 million, and it was a huge international success, which was also a surprise, right? Because at the time, these things didn't really travel like overseas into different languages and all that, but Sound of Music made the transition. So all of these studios that are kind of increasingly desperate are thinking, hey, maybe we can duplicate that success. This this is the same stuff you see still in Hollywood where it's like there's some kind of surprise blockbuster hit, and that's the thing that gets made for the next 10 years. Well, so it happened again. It happened with Chicago. Like the musical used to be the go-to, like Oscar bait, and then mm-hmm. it kind of disappeared. And then Chicago comes along, sweeps the Oscars, gets yeah. like yeah. an insane amount of nominations, and then for about five years, there was like a new musical every Christmas. But it was like it, just diminishing returns. You went from like Chicago to like Hairspray, which is a good, decent movie, to like Dreamgirls, okay. And then, and then like the next thing you knew, we were doing like Rock of Ages with Tom Cruise. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so that's where we're at. People are trying to ride the success of The Sound of Music with more musicals that they think are going to translate overseas too, that are going to be right. international successes. Needless to say, this was not that. But Robert Evans was convinced. He thought this was going to be it. Here's another quote from him about this particular movie, Paint Your Wagon. He says, We're sure our timing is right, with the public's appetite for musicals and westerns both. The idea is to film a western drama with music evolving from natural settings, not just a photographed play with the usual gay chorus line. So, you know, that does kind of give you a sense of, like, what they were trying to do with this. Because, right. you know, one thing I will say about it is this thing is shot all on location. And they built mm-hmm. an absolutely astounding and ridiculous set for this. It's the one thing the film has going for it. It's <laughs> right. the production design. Right. Now, okay, so backing up a little bit, wh- where are we in the sort of, like, Western renaissance? Like, where, again, I'm asking you as a sort of, like, Western fan. Like, I feel like... Their popularity was like the 50s, and then yep. the sort of spaghetti westerns was at the end of the 60s. But right. are so they popular? or Well, so, you know, Clint Eastwood in particular is coming off of a series of westerns, right? Right. So you have, let's see, so A Fistful of Dollars, that's the first Sergio Leone western with Eastwood. That's 1964. So actually okay. not that long before this. Right. And and he produces another one for the next two years. So he does okay. Fistful of Dollars, 64. For a few dollars more, 65, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, 66, right? Right, okay. After that, he does a few more Westerns between that and then Paint Your Wagon. And, and you know, like, the spaghetti Westerns are, you know, popular and an interesting yeah. new take on the genre. So that's that's kind of going on. So there is something to be said for Evans being like, okay, let's take these two things that are currently very successful, Westerns and musicals. Hey, yep. we've got this one written by 
Lerner and Lowe, who, you know, My Fair Lady was successful. Yeah. Like, this, well, should, and the, be, and all, this should be a hit. Else, everything else that Lerner and Lowe has done has already been turned into a movie. So it's like, you know, yeah, it's like you've attested, uh, you know, and like not all of them were successful, to be fair, right? My Fair Lady's huge, but like, you know, Camelot is not really. That's Joshua Logan's movie before this. Right. Uh, didn't do super well either, actually. It's probably, in terms of its gross, I think it's comparable to this. It just okay. cost less. Right. Right. And then what's the other one? Uh, Brigadoon. Brigadoon, which, yeah. you know, I haven't seen it. I don't know that much about it. But all that to say, you know, it's supposedly a safe bet, right? Right. Yeah, of course. Musicals seem to be doing pretty well. Westerns seem to be doing pretty well. Lee Marvin also has some serious Western chops at this point. He won Best Lead Actor, I believe, for Cat Baloo. Uh, okay, yeah, lead, yeah. Right? Western, he plays two roles in. I, think, I believe he plays the villain and the protagonist in that. And then you have, like, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is 62. Mm-hmm. He's coming okay. off of that. So it kind of makes sense on paper in a weird way. Anyway, in terms of the adaptation of this thing from a stage play to a movie, like I said, Alan Lerner is really one of the key engines behind this. Right. And he, so he does the lyrics for the musicals. Lowe does the music. And reading more about this, Lerner clearly has an enormous ego. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> All of the promotional material for this movie, like I was reading some of the promo packets, I watched a short documentary about the making of it, literally all of it is about how great Lerner is. It's like, Lerner is, he's a genius, and it's always like, he's narrating the documentary, and literally in the promo (laughs) packet, it tells the story of Lerner creating the musical, and at several points, calls out how handsome he is. It's it's ridiculous. Okay. Ridiculous. So anyway, he's got a huge ego, and he is not, apparently he was not happy with any of the adaptations of his musicals to this point. Right. Including My Fair Lady. Okay. So he wants to do it differently. And I think we talked about this a little bit on the episode about My Fair Lady, that he wanted to shoot that on location in London. And so that didn't happen. So this is his opportunity to do it his way, right? And they, they decide to go shoot it out in Oregon. We'll talk a bit of, a bit more about that later. But yeah, so this is Lerner's only producing credit ever. Hmm. He produces this movie, doesn't produce anything else. But he has a lot of control because of that. You know, just one example is that the Broadway production actually had choreography by Agnes DeMille, right, who's well known for Oklahoma. She sort of hmm. invented the whole dream ballet thing. And again, we talked about right. that in uh, the On the Town episode. So, you know, very well-respected choreographer. And uh, Lerner felt threatened, supposedly, by Agnes DeMille and got rid of her for the movie and replaced her with kind of a, I mean, what do you think? Pretty pretty lackluster choreographer, I mean, if there was we, one? <laughs> we both kept saying as we were watching it, like, people just kind of, like, stand around during yeah. the, the musical walk. numbers. Like, there's no, there's, to even call it choreographed is There's being, barely blocking. <laughs> yeah, like it's a yeah. very bizarre choice. Like it's not even that it's naturalistic. No, like there, there's something to be said by yeah. You could like get away with being like, oh, we're going for something more natural, but no, it's just literally like right. Yeah, it, it, oh, it's awful <laughs> for sure. So, so the, like I said, the original stage run uh, actually ran a ninety-five thousand dollar deficit. So not okay. exactly a gold rush. And when the show debuted on stage, reviews were sort of you know mixed. A lot of them called the second act kind of weak. Uh, okay. Which put a pin in that. And the stage show was, you know, transformed when they turned into this movie. Number one, they're trying to fix some of the flaws that I think they saw in the original stage production. They were trying to adapt it to a new audience. I found this great quote that said that they transformed it from a relatively pastoral narrative 
into a sexy morality tale. <laughs> oh, which, yeah. Uh, real sexy. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and you know, the moral was super clear and very right. a very important message. But to do so, they hired uh, this guy named Patty Chayefsky. Does that name ring a bell? It sure does. Yeah. Patty Chayefsky, of course, best known for writing Network, which yeah. is... One movie. like one of the best movies. Yeah, like it, I love that movie. I think it's a fantastic movie. He also did uh, The Hospital and Marty, uh, right, also Marty. two very well well like movies. I, I think he won the Oscar for best screenplay for all three of those. Wow. Um, so very good writer, but of course Lerner couldn't keep his paws off of it, and so he changed a lot of it to the point where I believe Lerner actually gets maybe the credit. In the end, and Chayefsky gets something like a story credit or something like right, that. Right, right, right. Um, but the big change that he made was actually getting rid of basically the main storyline from the musical, including the two major characters. So basically, it's like the main characters and the main story are gone from the musical. Um, and, oh, okay. Yeah, and and turned into something completely different. The music is the same. It's like less than <laughs> half of the music from the stage show makes it into the movie. The context of the things that do make it in the movie are completely different, too. The who sings it, what it's actually about, it's all different. Um, Interesting. So, but again, it's like when you think about, like, On the Town, that's actually not that different. Um, right. I think a lot of musicals got that treatment around this time. Well, I mean, it goes to my sort of complaint is maybe not the right word, but my analysis of My Fair Lady, which was that it felt less of an adaptation and more of a translation, and that they didn't really try to approach the fact that they were now making a film instead of a... It's interesting. I watched last night, I rewatched Amadeus. Have you ever seen Amadeus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in a while, but it's a good movie. A phenomenal movie. Like, again, one of the best movies. Mm. And the thing that struck me about that movie is that it's obviously an adaptation of a stage play. And when you watch it, if you didn't know it was based on a stage play, you would have no idea. Because it doesn't feel like a stage play. Usually stage plays, when they're adapted into movies, at least I find anyway, like, you can immediately tell, like, oh, this was based on a play. Because it's very talky. It's maybe, like, one or two locations. Right, right. And you go, oh, well, that makes sense because it was originally a play and, you know, you're in the theater. You can't really move around very much. Mm -hmm. Whereas Amadeus, it's, like, big. It's showy. It's bombastic. It's just over the top. Yeah. It is a really good example of, like, taking advantage of the medium of film to do what you couldn't do on stage. And where am I going with this? I'm not entirely sure. I guess it's just to say that. <laughs> oh, the, well, just about adaptation and like. Well, yeah. The, think, so the idea the, of yeah. recognizing the flaws or not necessarily the flaws of a stage production, but recognizing, okay, the now medium. we have the, yeah, we have the opportunity to do something different. Yeah. You know, they take advantage of location shooting. They build these big sets. They create a world that you couldn't necessarily create on stage. I'm all for that. It's just yeah, what I mean, they did with it. it <laughs> they kind of squandered text, it. Textbook case of, of, of uh, successful adaptation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, oh, no. I mean, God. I think that's the thing is that there's just like there is a there's a balancing act, right? Where, right. you know, yeah, I think you should adapt, right? Again, we talked about this in, in the My Fair Lady episode. But, you know, the idea that you should be completely faithful, I think, is maybe a little bit overrated in some ways. You're going to get blowback. Don't get me wrong from like mm-hmm. the diehard fans inevitably. But like. It's a different medium, and you have to do things differently. I just think the the idea of completely throwing out what the musical was about 
and recontextualizing all the music and then like you know throwing out most of the music as well it's just like then why are you even adapting it like well, just do something I, new I mean, you know i mean at with a that point. being said and not to throw shade at like the creative team mm-hmm. but think about something like cabaret where yeah. that's kind of what they do like fossey basically True. says i'm throwing out every song that isn't on stage yeah. in the kit kat club yeah they're gone So, like, you take a show that is a very traditional stage show with, like, lots of numbers Mm -hmm. and basically reduce it down to, I think there's maybe, like, 12 numbers in that film. Yeah. And, like, it becomes a very dialogue-heavy movie. Mm -hmm. But, like, it works. And I think the reason it works is that you have one of the greatest directors of our... Yes. You know, like that. So, again, not to like disparage Joshua Logan. Like, maybe it's just sort of a little above his pay grade. but For sure. Joshua Logan, right? He is, you know, a pretty accomplished dude. So he won the Pulitzer Prize because he created the stage production of South Pacific. Oh, shit. Okay, so I take everything back. He's no slouch. No, he's no slouch. He also directed Picnic, which was nominated for an Oscar, and worked with Brando on Sayonara, where he was nominated for an Oscar. Um, So So what the fuck happened? Well, so, uh, yeah, this is, you know, basically Joshua Logan worked with Lerner on... Camelot before this, as as well as the production designer, John Truscott, who worked on this. And so, like I said, it didn't do that much better, but it wasn't as much of a fiasco. Uh, And one of the main reasons why it became such a fiasco is Lerner decided to backseat direct this entire movie, basically. Mm. Would second guess Joshua Logan basically at every turn, every scene, uh, to the point where basically by the end, it's like most of the crew and the cast didn't have any respect for Joshua Logan because he couldn't assert himself in those situations. And also, like, Lerner has no film experience except for being, you know, loosely involved with the adaptations of his shows. But, like, he's not a film director, right? No. And so, like, a lot of the stuff that happens, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work on film. It's really a lack of clear vision. You know, you compared it to, like, Bob Fosse. It's like, that's one of the reasons why it works is, he has a thesis about which numbers right. you include and which you don't, right. right? That makes sense in the movie he's making. The stuff that, like, is in and out in this, the tone of it and stuff, it's all over the place. It's willy-nilly. Yeah. From scene to scene, it changes wildly. It just doesn't have any kind of cohesion. And a lot of that is, is Lerner's fault in a lot of ways. A couple other key people in this. You have cinematographer William A. Fraker, and you, I think you put down some notes. Yeah, I did put this down. So yeah, he yeah. he's a cinematographer, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Milos Forman's film, Jack Nicholson classic, uh, Tombstone, another Western, yeah. also which was sort of Good like movie. part like of the, movie. yeah, part of the 90s re- renaissance of Westerns, mm-hmm. uh, and War Games, which of course everyone sort of fondly <laughs> remembers as the video game nuclear war movie. Right. Uh, but then he also is the cinematographer of a series of like notorious flops, including 1941, which mm. is the Steven Spielberg like war comedy that doesn't do very well, Street Fighter, which mm-hmm. arguably one of the better but still not a very good video game movie (laughs) and what might be considered to be the worst sequel of all time the exorcist to the heretic oh yeah is that is that the one where oh what happens dennis Dennis hopper rides a giant locust or something yeah yeah, uh, well james earl jones Jones, and and he vomits an orange it's just the whole thing is a nightmare (laughs) uh yeah very 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 bad no very very bad and then you have the editor, who's Robert Jones, uh, Robert C. Jones. And again, like you had some notes here. 
Yeah, editor of another Simpsons favorite, which we've discussed. It's a mad, 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 mad world. I might have forgotten a couple of mads in there. And then also Days of Thunder, the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman right, right. race movie. Yes. Also parodied in The Simpsons. You have, uh, yes. was it Saturdays of Thunder? I think. Yes, Saturdays of Thunder, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think the promotion of this movie is also really interesting. So they had a $2 million marketing budget back in 1969. So they really went hard on this. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and on top of that, they also did a road show. This, this is the, like the tail end of that as a whole idea, right? A lot of musicals got this treatment back in the day. Yeah. And so basically it was like a touring show, like a, you know, like a, like a stage play. Michael Price sort of talked about this a little bit when yeah. we did My Fair Lady. But like, for those who don't remember, a road show literally was like, much like a touring theater production would come to town. The film would come into your town. It would play in a, you know, big movie house. Most of those movie houses are now back to being theaters, but it's kind of hard to imagine an era pre-multiplex. But yeah, it would play in like an actual, movie you know, palace. proper theater, yep. you know, with a curtain and you'd go in and there, a lot of the time you would actually receive like Playbill program mm-hmm. like that had the cast and, you know, information about the crew and production stills and all this. So it really was like going to the theater. It was an elevated experience. These were typically the theaters that also had like, it was a 70 millimeter print. You got, yep. you got like the full sound experience, six track stereophonic sound, right? Yep. So it was like, it was the, this was the best way to sort of experience these films. And so- It's something I wouldn't mind see come back, totally, to be honest. Sounds great. Like, Let's do it. Today, I feel like that's kind of like an IMAX screening is about as close as you get. And like that's, yeah. which I still love. I'll pay extra for IMAX. So this is also the first roadshow that's released or one of the first after the after the MPAA starts rating movies, right? Okay. And so, you know, all of the movies before this basically would have been rated G. This one gets rated M. Mm. Wow. So, you know, well, thruple. You know, there's a so, thruple. Uh, yeah. So, you know, 1969, that's uh, maybe a little risque, but... But yeah, so it's like that puts some limit on the audience as well at that time. It's a new, it's new territory, right? It started right. in 1968 that they started doing this. And then the other the other kind of interesting thing, just <laughs> really hard to fathom. After they did the roadshow, they cut 30 minutes out of this movie. Hmm. Can you imagine this movie 30 minutes longer? Uh, <laughs> Wait, well, unless no, this is on. the uncut version. Yeah, we're probably watching Maybe. the uncut version. Maybe. I God, I would. I hope I, so. I, oh, I hope so. I can't wow. imagine 30 more. I mean, obviously it was long and I'm, I would be glad to watch a shorter version of it. But also I'm just like, what would they be cutting? But apparently that wasn't super uncommon. And, and a right. lot of the times those sort of general release versions of the films are what ends up surviving. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like it's only in the last sort of 30 years or whatever that a lot of these like original roadshow cuts of the film have sort of survived and in some cases like the original version of a star is born i think has been lost it just straight up doesn't exist anymore they cut it down and you know for whatever reason they're like ah we'll just throw this this (laughs) stuff in the trash (laughs) and uh, yeah who needs judy garland anymore yeah for sure well so you know for all that though uh did not do so well the budget for this movie was 20 million dollars wow Again, okay, hold on. I'm gonna just uh, what's the inflation adjustment 1969 processing? I don't want inflation updates. (laughs) Okay, there we go. So, 20 million dollars in 1969 is worth 163 million dollars today. 
Yeah. So That's a lot of money. Huge, huge amount. Just for context, I'm going to look up the budget for the newest Avatar movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because well, you have yeah, to. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. Well, that's $350 million. <laughs> so, yeah, that was um, so I guess $163 million isn't. Well, so I have totally some, outrageous, I, I but I guess. I have a point of comparison. I have a point of comparison. So, so it cost $20 million, right? Right. And the first run domestic box office is. Ooh, not good. So that really hurts. The all-time domestic box office apparently is thirty-one million. So it made it made it. Okay, so eventually, just yeah, just cracked it. Not a hit. My Fair Lady, by comparison, the budget for that was seventeen million. So not that much less, right? But But, I mean, and I will say that it's on the screen. It is. Totally. Like, it, I, that's honestly, money well say, spent. I would say, to a certain extent, in both movies, these movies both look, okay, look yeah, good. Okay, yeah, you know what, fair right? enough, fair enough, you yeah. Know, and, they have, and they have stars, right? But My Fair Lady makes $72 million. <laughs> Yeah, so, so it, it does okay. So it does okay. But yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it was just too weird for family audiences and kind yeah. of too corny and old-fashioned for youth of the day. Right. Right. And so it's kind of neither here nor there, you know? Too crazy for boys' town, too much of a boy for crazy town, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, Roger Ebert had a good review of this. He sort of summed it up as just saying, the fact is, Pain Your Wagon doesn't inspire a review. It doesn't even inspire a put-down. It just lies there in my mind, a big, heavy lump. Yeah, that's spot on. Like, literally, as I was about to, like, record this, I was like, what am what I going to say? Like... <laughs> I don't remember anything about this movie. Like, now, granted, we watched it a couple of weeks ago, and then I yeah, got yeah. sick, and then so we're recording this a little later than we normally would. But it didn't leave a lasting impression. See, I, I had the opposite experience. Okay, actually. well, that's good, I, which because... is fascinating. I couldn't get out of my head just thinking about like, what are they trying to do here? Mm. Because it's like because this isn't the original musical at all, right? They recre right. they recreated this thing from the ground up, and were trying to do something. But what the hell were they trying to do, right? I, and well, I, you know, Nate, yeah. the the fact that Chayefsky comes along and tries to rewrite it, yes. and then Lerner kind of comes along and sort of poo poos that, and right. then you've got a director who's kind of lets the production get out of control because of an author who can't relinquish control it just sounds like essentially it's the classic case of you know too many cooks in the kitchen yeah and suffering from a lack of vision not to bring everything back to phantom but it kind of reminds me of the film adaptation of that which is like mm. i think the reason that film adaptation suffers is that like rather than hire a competent director with the vision they hire joel schumacher and then like andrew lloyd Webber just kind of got in the way and that's how you end up with the sword fight in the middle of the movie. Right. Like, it's just, rather than let the professionals who make movies make the movie, it's like the stage theater people who think they know best are yeah. like, no, 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 we have to do it this way. And then what you end up getting is like... It, Neither here you know, nor there. It, yeah, it doesn't work in either context. So so that's interesting. I, I, I do have a theory about this. So this movie's 1969, right? Yeah. It, it's coming out between... When Hair, the musical Hair, <laughs> premieres off-Broadway at the Public Theater. Right. And when Jesus Christ Superstar, the concept album, Jesus! is released in 1970, yep. right? Yep. I think this movie is 
kind of trying to be what those musicals are, which is a sort of like counterculture thing, right? Right. Of being like, how do we engage the youth culture in the musical as a medium? Right. And it just absolutely fails at it because learners from a different generation, he's mm-hmm. kind, he's the person most in the driver's seat, right? But like, if you look at all of the, the sort of decisions that are being made around this musical, someone's pushing it in that direction, right? And right. who knows, maybe it's the uh, producers, right? But, but like, you have like this idea of like the Wild West and Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin and, and Gene Seberg, who's like really big in the French New Wave. Yeah, I was going to say, stuff. she's like a star of, all those like French New Wave, right? Godard Truffaut movies, right? So you got this casting, right? That that seems to be trying to kind of like get at the sort of rebel spirit, right? Like that's right. the sort of big takeaway from the casting. They add this whole idea of the three way relationship. That's like you know they all get along and live together and have sex together, right? That's kind of so that's not part of the no. original. Okay, it's not it's not in the musical. <laughs> The character of partner does not exist in the musical. Oh. Wait, Uh, so what's the plot of the musical? Oh, man. So, so, okay, so Ben Rumson is a character in the original musical. Okay. So that's Lee Marvin's character. character. Okay. Right. He's a character in the original musical. He has a wife and Mm -hmm. a daughter. Okay. Uh, They are in the gold rush, so that's all similar. The town might actually be called Rumson in the musical, I think. And I believe the main... plot is that the daughter falls in love with a Mexican prospector and okay. that it's sort of like frowned upon that's the plot and that feels like a very sort of like golden age of musicals era yeah. kind of plot like sure. the classic sort of like star-crossed lovers yeah. you know from different sides of the track but you take that and you say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. That is so corny. It's been done. It's been done. And, Which, and to be fair, it has. And also, I believe that this part of it is Patty Chayefsky's idea. Right. He, he, this is one of the things he adds. Is he says, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're going to do something more interesting. And he introduces this like whole idea of them being like, yeah, why can't we just have that relationship? Which does feel kind of like counterculture, free love sort of mm-hmm. stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they just kind of like totally fumble it, I think. It, especially in the second act, it just kind of is like, what the hell am I watching? Well, and I guess that also would explain <laughs> my biggest complaint with the film. Yeah. Because I can forgive a lot of that stuff. But sure. it's the fact that these musical numbers, as I said, this is the least cohesive musical I've ever seen. Like, I've seen jukebox. Mama Mia does a better job of taking a bunch of disparate songs yeah. that have no relation and forwarding the plot right. through the music of ABBA right. than this movie does. And I, I being like, what do these numbers have to do with anything? They make no sense. It's just like a bunch of random songs. Right. But now that makes sense because they well, literally like, are. They're just being shoehorned in there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just for, for one example, right? I think it's the first song that Clint Eastwood sings, I Still See Elisa. I still see Elisa, she keeps on returning. The original musical, I believe, Ben Rumson sings that about his wife. <laughs> okay. In, right. in the movie, <laughs> Clint Eastwood's just singing it. And yeah. they make a point He's recovering of, from his, like, he's well, recovering it, from his wagon accident, right. and he just randomly and, breaks out into song. And uh, and someone asks him about it later, and he's like, no, no, there isn't a real Elisa. <laughs> it's like, they, like, call out the fact that, no, 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 that's not actually about anyone. It doesn't actually matter. I'm just, like, lonesome. And it's like, 
you just took the song that has like all the stuff about it. You know, it might be that the wife dies in the or is dead. Right. In the oh yeah, that so would be, that would make sense. He's, yeah, he's yeah. singing about how he's missing his dead wife, and mm-hmm, in the and mm-hmm. in the movie, they're just like, no, yeah, it's just about like whatever. <laughs> it's like they just take all of the songs and kind of like take them out of context and don't really use them in an interesting way, and then they don't write anything to that actually replaces the sort of heart of what is going on in the story. Well, and then to the the whole like the hair Jesus Christ superstar comparison, yeah. like the thing that makes those shows interesting and kind of transgressive or whatever is that they're using the language of musical theater via the sound and music of rock and roll mm. ah, see, to sort of contemporize it. But see, this is the thing, is that this is also trying to build off of the sort of folk rock rise, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. So, okay, interesting. So, you know, there's a, that song, Can of Beans is the name of the song. Yeah, yeah, which right, which is in the musical. It's in the original musical. Okay. Hand me down my can of beans. Hand me down my can of beans. Hand me down my can of beans. I'm coming away. It might make sense to you that it was originally the beginning of Act Two. It was the big ensemble yes, it number feels, at the beginning. It, yeah, of Act it feels two. like uh, something that to open up an act. Right. Two. Okay. Which, that but makes instead, sense. in the movie, again, it's just like jammed a in the random... middle with no context. Has nothing. It's not a particularly momentous time in the movie. There's no nothing. And it's also not a very good number because people are just kind of like dancing willy-nilly anyway. But the band that is singing that song. It's like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band? That's right. Do you know this band? I'm familiar with the name of them. Okay. I couldn't tell you a song that they sing, but yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm familiar that they exist. Right. Yeah. So they started out as a Southern California folk band. Their first album was 1967, so two years before this movie. They were on the Johnny Carson show. Right, they, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. They went electric in 68 and became a bit of a novelty act. But this is all happening, like, right before this movie. And so they feature them in the movie as a way, probably, to tap into exactly that kind of energy of, like, it's not rock music, but it's, like, that contemporary folk revival, which right. kind of jibes with the Western thing. Kind of makes sense on paper, right? But then you still have Andre Previn... Yeah. <laughs> orchestrating this thing right. with his lush string arrangement and choral. Like, it's exactly. just... Which, granted, he also did the orchestrations for the Jesus Christ Superstar movie, right. though, ask me how I feel about the orchestration for the Jesus Christ Superstar movie. Like, <laughs> it feels like it's just doesn't know what it wants to do. Like, yeah, it's, totally. it's all over the place. Totally. So, yeah, that's my big theory. And, like, you know, they tried to support this with the yeah. marketing campaign. They got Peter Max, who's a visual artist, to do the posters. He was really well known because he actually did the posters for the second Central Park Be-In, which Mm. is like a classic, like, hippie event in 1967. Yeah, I feel like you sent me some of these posters. Yeah, yeah. They're actually, they're really cool posters. They're really cool. They're awesome. We'll have to include them. Go to our website and on the, like, the show notes or whatever, we'll include some of these because they're not whatever you are imagining they look like. They're awesome. They do not look like a traditional, like, movie poster. I would consider, like, hanging them on the wall. They're that cool, but it's a really terrible movie. So, so yeah, I mean, like, they went all in, I think, on this idea, but the content of the film doesn't totally live up to that, particularly because it is a morality tale. Right. At the end, it's like, no, 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 this whole living together thing, it's not... With three people, that doesn't work. And no, we have to go back to the way things were. They're sort of persuaded by like a very religious family to like get back into this sort of like normal way of living. They totally go back on all of that. And I think 
that's only one of the reasons why this movie doesn't work. But I think that's part of why the vibe doesn't totally land in terms of like, what is this movie supposed to be? What are they trying to tell us? So let's talk about the cast. Let's talk about the cast. <laughs> Lee Marvin in yeah. a musical. Yes. An interesting thing here, again, around in the episode about My Fair Lady, we talked a little about dubbing, right? Yes. So that movie had some controversy about dubbing. When I was researching this movie, Joshua Logan actually had a quote about this where he was saying that ever since West Side Story in 1961, people were getting really bothered by dubbing. And so that's part of why this movie, which has three non-singers in it, um, (laughs) is mostly not dubbed. It is at least Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin actually singing. Gene Seberg, I think, was actually dubbed. But Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood not, sadly. (laughs) Um, I will say, just because we probably won't talk about him otherwise, because I don't even remember what his character was, but the actor Harp... Harvey Presnell, who sings yeah. They Call the Wind Mariah, yep. actually has a killer voice. Like, that yeah. is the one number in the show where I was like, okay, yeah. like, I'm, He's this great. is good. And they call the wind Mariah. Mariah blows the stars around and sends the clouds a flying. Do you know the movie that I knew him from before this? No. Fargo. He's the dad. Oh, shit, you're right. He's the, he's dad. the dad in Fargo. In Fargo. I, but like, oh. I don't even know how many years later, right? He's completely unrecognizable because he's an old man in that movie. But yeah, he's amazing. But he's also, yeah, well, he's, he was sort of, a, uh, apparently he was like a musical guy coming up right in this sort of awkward moment of musicals and never quite found the right movie vehicle for his right. talent. But he's amazing. He's really good. He's, oh. Yeah, he's like the, the that only is good the one singer, like that like lead singer in this movie. Pretty yeah, much. although credit where credit is due. Yeah, Clint Eastwood, not better terrible. Than, better than like I way better than I expected. I was expecting oh, yeah. end credits of Gran Torino, Clint Eastwood. Which, um, <laughs> if you're not familiar with that, let's just take a quick little peek at what that sounds like. Gentle now. Not his best work. Um, his biggest flaw is just that he can't emote while he's singing. He has a decent voice, I think, but he's not a very good musical singer, right? Um, yeah. From that standpoint. And Lee Marvin is <laughs> I just absolutely hopeless as a singer, but he's the only one carrying it from a dramatic standpoint. Yes. Like he's actually acting his ass off in this movie, and yeah. no one's giving him anything uh, it's, to work It's off an of. interesting contrast to... Rex Harrison yeah. as Henry Higgins. And there's some, like, debate whether or not he could or could not sing. But, yeah. you know, the story goes, couldn't carry a tune, so they just got him to speak sing. Right. Whereas Lee Marvin couldn't carry a tune, but that didn't stop them. They still let him sing Wandering Star. Yeah. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> I'm not going to get into it now. Lee Marvin, right, as I said, he has he has some, like, Western chops coming into this, sort of known as a bad boy, both on and off the screen. I read this interview with him by Roger Ebert that Roger Ebert said is the best interview he ever did when he was uh, at whatever magazine he was at. Um, but he is, like, drunk off his ass, mistreating his he, wife. He being... Lee Marvin, um, not Lee, Roger okay. Ebert. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Okay, uh, uh, Rog. No, the, Lee Marvin is drunk off his ass, constantly asking for another beer, like, mumbling, rambling, saying all sorts of crazy nonsense. He seems like he had a lot of problems, frankly. 
And right. apparently on the set of this movie, every time you see him drinking on screen, he's drinking actual alcohol because mm. the crew couldn't stop him from putting real alcohol in the bottles. Well, so, I mean, it's what Homer says. Like, he literally says, oh, yeah. here's Lee Marvin. Like, he's always drunk. Like, yeah, yeah. this will be good. Yeah, yeah. So he was, you know, a mess. One uh, quote I found from Joshua Logan about, about Lee Marvin that I thought was pretty great was, uh, he said of him on the set of this movie, not since Attila the Hun swept across Europe, leaving 500 years of total blackness, has there been a man like Lee Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, But, you know, he is acting his ass off. And I thought he was genuinely funny at moments, genuinely interesting to watch on screen, I guess. Yeah. You know, but again, there's nothing. he's not working with a whole lot. The script works sometimes and doesn't work other times. There's a lot of, like, slapstick stuff that doesn't work at all. And, like, none of his co-stars are really working very well with him. Yeah, because you're supposed to, like, buy this friendship between him and Pardoner. Uh, which, I, can we also just talk about the fact that his name literally is Pardoner? Yeah, P-A-R-D-N-E-R. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's how it's spelled. Like, it's not Pardoner, it's Pardoner. Um, well, this is the West, Adam. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, that. like... You, you never buy the like relationship between the no, two of them like it's not really which is the the whole movie hinges on this idea right. of like that they that they get along enough or trust each other enough or whatever to be in a relationship with a woman together and yeah. like that's the whole thing and and it doesn't ever totally work let's talk about Jean Seberg um I can't say that I'm super familiar with her other work I haven't seen a lot of Jean-Luc Godard's movies but She's best known for Breathless. That was sort of her like yep. br- her breakout hit by Jean-Luc Godard. Before that, she beat out 18,000 women, supposedly, for her first role in a movie called St. Joan, which was not very well received. And she kind of had a rocky career other than that. She kind of had this big moment in the early 60s in the French New Wave. And then like very few of her other things sort of clicked, which is really sad. I think she's not bad in this, you know. But it's not really given much to work with. Right, exactly. It's kind of a thing. As we sort of discovered, like, these these movies by men, the right. female characters tend to be horribly underwritten. Yeah. Um, so. For sure. The other interesting and sad thing about Jean Seberg is that she actually was a very outspoken civil rights activist. Oh, And okay. uh, the FBI actually planted news stories about her. Um, and oh. particularly when she was pregnant, that she had been impregnated by the head of the Black Panthers. Oh, um, and she had a huge breakdown, lost the child, and was kind of depressed ever since and actually committed suicide in 1979. Jesus. So really awful stuff. But she is in this movie plugging away. She is the only lead that is actually dubbed by someone who possibly has a higher singing voice than she does. Anyway. Mm. To be honest, I don't even remember her singing that much anyway. She only so. sings one song, I think, which right. is the one about the cabin. I think right. that's a new, right, one, of the right, new right. ones. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's one of the right, new right. ones. Um, yeah, and then we got Clint Eastwood. Uh, so now I think we kind of discussed, like, remind me, because this was my biggest question going, yeah. watching this, was like, where does this fall within the Clint Eastwood oeuvre? Like, it's yeah. post Sergio Leone, but pre Dirty Harry. Yeah, that's right. So okay. he is coming off of the Dollars trilogy. He's done a few other Westerns before this. You know, actually in that documentary I mentioned, Lerner has a quote about him, which is telling of where Clint Eastwood is in his career at this moment. So Lerner says, Clint is excellent too. We didn't realize that he has a real command of himself as an actor. Hmm. But in this, 
he has an opportunity to really play scenes with dialogue and not just pure action, which is okay. the biggest backhanded compliment you could lob at someone, really. Yeah. Because, um, you know, the dude, like, he was also on Rawhide for years, right? Like, mm -hmm. he, the guy has been around for a while. And also, to be clear, this comes out in 1969. His directorial debut is 1971 with Play Misty for me. Right. I, that was the other question I was going right. to say. Is like, when when does he start directing? Yeah. And so the, not and the, that long after. That's right. And the same year is Dirty Harry. So right. like, okay. he goes on so he's to about, do, he's doing okay. Like, he goes on to do stuff after this, you know, obviously. But Lerner is so condescending about him. And I think this was probably at a moment where, like, he clearly felt like he needed to kind of expand his horizons. And maybe he saw this as, as an opportunity to do that. But I think he was not very happy with the rewrites that were happening to the, right. to the movie. I think maybe he saw the Chayefsky script originally before Lerner got his hands on it. And was like, yeah, yeah, I'll it was do probably, this. Yeah, this sounds, this sounds, sounds interesting. interesting. And then Lerner got his hands on it and edited a bunch. And he was not happy about that, but was already kind of locked in. Right. <laughs> and learned a lot about how not to direct a movie. So, yeah, that's kind of where Clint is in this. And... Another interesting sort of sidebar, Seberg and Eastwood actually had an affair during this movie. Okay. They were both married, and it actually caused Seberg's husband to fly to the set from Europe and literally challenge Clint Eastwood to a duel. <laughs> okay. Oh, um, the duel didn't happen, but the affair ended, and so did the marriage. Woo! Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. Again, like feel bad for Gene Seberg at all this because Eastwood had yeah, a no lot kidding. of affairs, a lot of children that were yeah. not with the people he was with at that time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. like not great. And I think she was, you know, more into it than he was. So total bummer. Yeah. But yeah, that's who we're dealing with in this movie. <laughs> Talk about the plot uh, as it is. I mean, sure. Why not? Let's try. Okay. I don't have much to contribute because, yeah, like I said, enough. don't really remember it. Fair enough. So Not the most memorable plot. No, it's not. So, I mean, like, there isn't a lot. So, let's just, in Act 1, right, is mostly about the thruple getting together. Yeah, it's setting up the fact that there's a dearth of women. Yeah. And one comes to town and... Essentially, as we sort of alluded to, basically they hold an auction for because this man Awful. has two wives, and so they say that's unfair. You, we're going to have an auction, and her philosophy being, well, it doesn't matter who buys me; they can't possibly be worse than what I'm already in. Right? They try to like have their cake and eat it too by being like, we're going to auction off this woman, but she's going to be into it, so it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. So she's sort of like, yeah, it couldn't be worse. So yeah, I'm into it. Let's let's auction me off. And then yeah, Lee Marvin drunkenly bids on her. But then I guess like the rest of the town is kind of still pissed off now because there's, you know, one woman and like a hundred men or something like that, and they're all coveting her, Elizabeth. And so Lee Marvin gets wind of the fact that there are some sex workers in the next town over or something that are coming from France or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, decides to pull a heist to go get <laughs> the women. So he goes off and does that, and while he's doing that, Clint Eastwood and Elizabeth fall in love. Actually fall in love. Actually yeah. fall in love. And I guess, like, before that, we should say, like, you know, the reason why Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin are both there is, like, they kind of strike gold together. Right. Right? Like, 
Clint Eastwood's well, brother well, Clint dies Eastwood gets at the it, beginning yeah, of the Clint movie. Yeah, Clint Eastwood gets in an accident yeah. and... <laughs> a wagon and, accident. Yeah, a wagon accident and... His brother dies. Uh, his brother dies and then Ben sort of nurses him back to hell. Right, well, and I think and, at the funeral they find gold. Yes, and I think that's correct. There's like a ridiculous shot where they realize there's gold in the ground and they literally like throw the body out of the grave. Oh my God. Which is the beginning of the really off-putting slapstick humor in this movie. The tone of this movie it's is all just all over the place. Yeah. Like, it's indescribable, really. Yeah, it is. It's it, You really have to see it to believe it, I think. But yeah, so they, you know, find gold and they build this town, right? And they call it No Name City. There's a shot where I legitimately did laugh out loud. They have a big sign out front that says, No Name City, population male. Yeah, that like, was a that was a funny gag. Very funny. Simpson-esque. Yes. So this is where the production design, I think, feel like really comes in, right? They had yeah. this big emphasis. I think it's probably, again, partly coming from Lerner on realism. It's an odd thing to get hung up on with this kind of musical, but they were really big on the realism. So the production d- designer, John Truscott, who also worked on Camelot, demanded that they shoot on location in the Wallowa Mountains region, which is in Oregon, and Lerner backed them up. So they built this whole town and a camp 47 miles of dirt roads away from the closest town. Good Lord. (laughs) And that's where the cast and crew stayed was in that town. And the dirt roads were so bad that eventually they resorted to flying them in by helicopter every day to shoot. Oh, my God. So you want to know why it cost $20 million? Yeah, no kidding. It's shit like that. But again, I think this speaks to this sort of like misunderstanding of what what makes a good adaptation. It's like... Oh, well, now that we're not on stage, rather than imply what a town might look like with some flats and, you know, some lighting, Mm -hmm. we got to show the audience. So let's build a whole friggin' town in the middle of Oregon because that's what's going to, like, sell this. But it doesn't matter how cool your set looks if your plot is dog shit and your songs make no sense. Totally, totally. And, like, on the same note, the supporting cast is also dog shit it's terrible it's really awful other than harv presnell who's killing it everyone else is like not good at acting and like you know the singing (laughs) may not be them because the chorus might just be yeah yeah it's probably just like session singers or whatever and and so it's just like you have all these like weird again very off-putting immigrant stereotypes Mm -hmm. so you have like oh the irish guy and the german guy and all this accents are terrible the acting's terrible. Yeah, the comedy's not good. It's just like, what is this? How how could you not find someone better? And I, and I kept being like, what accent is this supposed to be? <laughs> like, right. This is just, uh, yeah, it's it's a mess. Yeah, so that's kind of it for Act One. Oh, well, well, yeah. we we didn't talk about the big piece of trivia though. Oh, so Harv Harv Presnell or Harvey Presnell, I don't know how you pronounce it, but anyway, yeah. he sings this this song. Mm-hmm. They call the wind Mariah, which was one of the two genuine like hits, hits that yeah. came out of this show chart topping chart topping hits big single very successful it's written maria mm-hmm. like how you would normally write maria but for whatever reason is pronounced mariah and that is where mariah carey yeah gets her name that's right so that's a fun little piece of trivia yeah. mariah carey is named after a song from paint your wagon yeah for sure and a lot of the songs from this musical actually saw a revival during the sort of 50s folk thing right. as, as standards, basically. So again, like that's, I think, what they're trying to capitalize on here. 
But yeah, that number is actually pretty good. It's hard to even figure out what the hell it's about because it's all very oblique, right? But it's well, it's completely out of place. Like it's a good number, right? But like, why is it there? I just right. it, yeah. They it, kind of and they can't kind of make up their mind about whether these songs are diegetic or not, right? Because like mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood's is diegetic. He's singing in the world of the music. Yes, musical because and it's commented on as though yeah, he's singing music specifically. And then yeah. other times it's just like nope, they just broke into song, and that's just like part of the sort of reality of this world. Yeah, and it's just really hard to pin down. But most of these songs don't really move the plot forward or the action forward. And a lot of them happen without a lot of fanfare or connection to the scene that's going on, I Mm -hmm. guess. On top of that, as we've already sort of discussed, they're all so badly blocked and choreographed and shot. And kind of sung only okay, for the most part. Yeah, like there's no majesty. No energy. They're so boring to watch. They're like, <laughs> like I, I beg for the dramatic scenes when I'm watching the musical scenes yeah. where I'm just like, bring, give me, give me Lee Marvin talking again, please. Like you I, could cut every single song out of this you'd movie. You'd hardly notice. And you, uh, I don't think you'd notice at all. Yeah. I genuinely do not yeah. think you would. It would almost work better. <laughs> yeah. I think it might actually work better. The first half actually might work better. The second half is an absolute disaster, but the yeah. first, but the first half I'm kind of like, I don't know. Like, there's almost something here. Just like, why is this a musical? And like, where is it going? If your musical can withstand you cutting every musical number, yeah. there's a very serious wrong. problem. Yeah. So I guess the one last thing I would say about the first act is the montage of Clint Eastwood and Gene Seberg falling in love made me laugh out loud several <laughs> oh, times. Oh, oh you mean the scene where they just walk through the forest? Because they have, like, most of the shots are just them, like, looking at each other with <laughs> no emotions on their faces. Completely blank. They're just, like, completely, completely blank, blank, just looking at each other. It's, it's kind of hilarious in that context that they had an affair on set because none of it comes through <laughs> at all no. in that scene. No. Um, and then, I guess, like, at the end of the first act, Lee Marvin comes back from stealing some sex workers yeah, and realizes that they're together. And again, I thought this was actually kind of fun. He sort of is like, oh, I saw you together, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and at first, Clint Eastwood's like, no, you know, we didn't do anything. It's nothing's going on. You know, nothing's happened. And Lee Marvin's like, well, good, because I would think that, you know, we trust each other so much that if you had those feelings, you would have told me first and blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, well, that's right. And I do have feelings for your wife. <laughs> And, and like, that whole scene actually is kind of interesting, where he says it up front. It doesn't play out how you expect it. Yeah. Lee Marvin goes and, like, talks to Elizabeth, and she's sort of like, well, yeah, I actually do love him. And he goes back to Clint Eastwood and is like, <laughs> well, you know, she loves you, so I guess you should be together. And she comes over and she's like, well, why can't we all just be together? And, <laughs> and it's just like, eventually, I think Lee Marvin's literally like, well, why not? <laughs> and that's how it goes. End of up. act. Yeah, end of act. <laughs> and, then in the, and then the next act opens up, and they're just together. That part of it is actually kind of interesting, because it's not so like I'd ever seen in a movie before, that like yeah. plays it so casually, and is kind of like, yeah, who cares? Then the second act is an absolute train wreck, and apparently, <laughs> uh, according to Joshua Logan, the first act was mostly Chayefsky's content, and the okay. second act is mostly Lerner. Yeah. So he's bringing all of this sort of like, 
old school musical sensibilities to this, and it really shows. It sure does. Right? So it's like we have this new status quo. This is one of the things I've been thinking about with these movies. It's interesting that a lot of them are two acts, right? Because it's kind of a different structure than I'm used to in a movie. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, the first act usually has its whole arc and then ends with almost, like, a new status quo. And then the second act starts with the status quo and has almost its own story, right? And that's what yeah. happens in this, too. So the new status quo is there is the thruple now. They are together. Everything seems fine between them. There's no jealousy. Everything's working okay. And now that they have the sex workers in town, this tent city has become a boom town. And this set is even more extravagant <laughs> than the previous set because they're like multi-story buildings. It's way more dense. Apparently the set itself cost $2.4 million. It took seven months to construct. It was only supposed to take like a couple months. It took seven. And eventually they ended up having to actually recreate all of these sets on a Hollywood soundstage because the summer production dragged into the winter time. <laughs> like It was worth it because they made a real good movie. Yeah, I know, right? So yeah, it's, uh, oh it's wild. Oh my God. But, and we open up with this new song, not in the original musical, new to the movie, which I think is actually pretty good. It's called The Gospel of No Name City. You want to see sin of the wickedest kind? Here it is. You want to see virtue left behind? Here it is. I think it actually has a bit of a Jesus Christ superstar vibe. So you basically have this preacher coming to town, and he's like, ah, you know, this town is a town of sin, blah, blah, blah. And he sings this song that's kind of like a Christian revival sort of song. And uh, I think it's kind of fun. You know, and he actually can kind of sing in a musical kind of way. He doesn't have a great voice, but he's singing in character and it's pretty fun. But it has a bit of that sort of like anachronistic thing that Jesus Christ Superstar has going on and sort of uh, playing with musical genre and stuff that I thought was interesting and more interesting than most of the other stuff going on in this movie. Yeah, well, I think by this point I was just praying for the movie (laughs) to be over. (laughs) Yeah. Were the new songs also written by Lowe? Like, because you were saying that Lerner right. was on board and he was a producer, but Lowe was not. So, like, are the new songs also like Andre Previn? T- oh, so it's all, it's Andre Previn wrote the new. I songs. believe so. Interesting. I believe so. Okay. Yeah. So, Interesting. So yeah, and like they're not bad. It's not that they're bad songs. I think a lot of it is in just the presentation. It's like a lot of them just right. don't work because it's like Clint Eastwood singing it and he can't can't pull it off as a musical number, basically. Right. So then the sort of conflict of this is that, like, they realize they're running out of gold and winter is coming. And so they're sort of like, oh, shit, we're not going to have any money or food. So what the hell are we going to do? And basically, (laughs) Lee Marvin goes to the bar one night and (laughs) is talking to some people and is like, hey, wait a second, there's a lot of gold dust in the floorboards of the saloon. So what if we built all these tunnels under the city (laughs) and captured all of the gold dust through the floorboards and then we'd have more gold. Yeah, because everybody's (laughs) having a stomping good time. So they build a Great Escape-esque tunnel with, like, zero effort. And to be clear, we're not just talking about, like, dug out tunnels like they are fully built out like people are walking around it defies logic totally and i think they have the most like simpsons parody-esque musical number around this point which i think is called best things which is like about how the best things in life are dirty right right 
The best things in life are dirty. It's like their mining song, and they're just like, you know, gonna build a mine. You know, like, it's just, it's yeah. such a bad number, and they're so happy-go-lucky, and there's a lot of, like, really bad slapstick stuff. I think Lee Marvin at one point picks up his hat, and it's full of mud, and he puts it on his head, and the mud pours down his face. Yeah. It's just like, what? How, how did the first half of this movie lead us here? So yeah, the film sort of descends into, like, self-parody. Yeah. And again, it's this tonal thing of, like, is this supposed to be, like, a sweeping love story? Is it supposed to be a counterculture comment on society? Right. Or is it supposed to be, like, a slapstick comedy? Like, it just vacillates between all three yeah. And you're just like, whoa, what, what am I watching? There, there's a world where the full Chayefsky script was actually good, I think. Yeah, there's a world where, it's like, wow, where, and, it, it, where it carries the theme all the way through. Yeah. And it's like, I can't believe they went there. Like, yeah. That, and it that probably, probably would exists. be much like Cabaret and, yes. and like would lose a bunch of the songs yeah. or the songs that would be there would be songs like the Elisa song and like yeah. just these little moments where you can have diegetic numbers right. And it might actually work. And, and, and they might have. And honestly, it's like the thruple might have stayed together or like there may have been some kind of like really radical ending where like they, that has something interesting to say. Right. But that's not what happened. Instead, we got to talk about it. We're because we're, we're so we got to be at Wandering Star by now. Right. We're like, getting close. We're, we're, we're getting. There. Okay, OK. 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 I really I want because I really want to talk about it. I promise. So, so the sort of key thing that happens here that sort of starts things in a different direction. There's the two parallel sort of tracks. We have the the gold dust scheme and then right. we have this family that they I guess they, what is it? They find it they find them in a snowstorm and take them in or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Very religious family. Just, yeah, this is when it starts to descend almost into like now we're doing a British sex farce. Yes, totally. Like, That's the vibe. So basically you have this family, the young like boy, Lee Marvin decides he's gonna corrupt him. So that's a whole yeah. subplot. Uh, of, of Lee Marvin corrupting the, this young Jesus. boy who, like, the joke sort of running gag, which, again, I laughed out loud a couple times, was, yeah. is that, like, he's a total noob, right? Doesn't know anything about anything about sex or drugs or rock and roll. Um, <laughs> but Lee Marvin, every time he introduces him to something, he's, like, great at it. So it's, like, yeah. he can hold his liquor, right? He's attractive to women, like, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, he really takes to the sex and then part. That, Yeah, and then he gets, like, really wrapped up in, like, you know, the sex workers and, and all of that. So that's kind of, like, one thing that's going on. And then while he's doing that and also doing the, the mining stuff, you have Clint Eastwood and you have Gene Seberg also having second thoughts about this whole, like, arrangement that they have. Because mm-hmm. she's seeing the family together and she's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be normal? And Clint Eastwood sort of, like, has this horrible number called Gold Fever. And I got gold fever. No romp and rollin' girl and fellow stop can cure the fever. Do you remember that number? No. <laughs> I mean, I honestly it's so don't. forgettable. It, he, like, gets up during a card game or something, and it feels like you're suddenly in David Lynch movie. It's like there's, like, theatrical lighting, and right. he's just like, I don't even remember the lyrics, but he's like, gold fever, I got gold fever. Oh, yeah, 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 you know, I do vaguely remember like, this. It's such yeah, yeah, yeah. a dull, yeah. like, lifeless song you know again in a proper musical that song is supposed to be the moment where he changes his mind 
right? Right. And that's what the song should be about. But you don't get right. that from the scene. No. So anyway, that's all happening. And she basically kicks Lee Marvin out of the house at some point. Well, it should be stated that when the family shows up. Yeah. Oh, they, right. Yes, yes. They say that she's married to Clint, not Lee Marvin. Right. Lee Marvin's a cousin or something. I can't remember. Yeah. It's and just so they Clint have to, Eastwood's there is the reason. Yeah. So they have to keep up this appearance. Yeah. And like Lee Marvin, now he's starting to feel like, okay, well, before we talked about it, I was okay with it, sort of, kind of. But now I'm feeling like yeah, you yeah, guys yeah. are taking advantage so, of me. Right. So they, so they his, kick him his out. His feelings are hurt. Yeah, so they, they kick him out and, and his feelings and are he hurt. He has to go sleep at the brothel. It's a wandering star takes place basically during his walk from his house to the brothel. Yeah. And it's just the whole song is basically <laughs> just a close-up of Lee Marvin mumbling to himself. With, with a hangdog expression. Right. And, and it's just literally again and again. He's like... To be again clear, and again he, and again. Uh, over and over again, while an all-men's chorus is in the background sort of, yeah. like, backing him up. Right. To sort of, like, I guess, make it sound a bit like he can. I don't, oh my, it beggars belief. Let, let me tell you something absolutely astonishing about this. I can't wait. This film version topped the charts in the UK and Ireland, and guess what it beat out? I, I don't know. I don't know. Let it be by the Beatles. It's, you're you're lying. There's it's no true. way. It's true. Th- this, this version, version this Lee Marvin's version. wandering star. Yes, beat out. Let it be. Lennon and McCartney. One of my Let favorite it be. Beatles songs. Like, it's so insane. Literally one of the greatest songs. It's, it's certainly insane. one of the greatest Beatles songs. Arguably one of the greatest songs of it's all time. Insane. It's absolutely. I I don't no. know what's wrong. No. With no. With like. No. 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 Uh, you know. Those people over there, but there's something wrong because that is just Jesus. Wow. Um, so yeah, so that's that's Wandering Star. I mean, is what else? Is there anything else to say about it? Oh, God, like again, the choice not to dub is, I suppose, kudos kind of to them, but like, but it's it's the, if, it's the same shit that we're dealing with still. It's like Les Mis. It's the same thing. It is. It really is. Thing, where it's just it's, like it, you cast actors who who have name recognition and who are good actors but who are not musical people and then yeah. you ask them to sing and people are disappointed by their performance because because like there are people who can do both and you're just choosing not to cast them for the name recognition i, I mean i i it's not to defend this film. I mean, like, Lee Marvin doesn't have to sing that much, so it, it's a little bit different than casting uh, what's-his-name as Javert in well. Lee Miz. But, I mean, yeah, no, it's it's true. It's like, why do these songs even exist, though? Because, like, they're not forwarding the plot. Like, it's just... I Well, I oh think this is, the other thing. this is the other thing that actually we haven't mentioned. So if you look at the chronology of, like, when the musicals came out and when the movies come out, this is the last movie by Lerner and Lowe to be adapted, but it's right. maybe the second or third musical that they wrote. It may be Brigadoon, and then this, and then My Fair Lady. By My Fair Lady, they got it. It's like yeah. the songs forward the plot. They're very character-driven. You know, it's kind of the peak of that, right? And now we've come yeah. to expect that format. 
But like this is still early days. It's like 1952 or something like that. Yeah, that's and, fair. And so that it's sort fair. of like the integrated musical thing was still kind of in progress, and I don't think they totally hit it yet. They're thematic and you know somewhat character driven, but they're still kind of like songs par- that are part of a play. You know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's Wandering Star. The whole family plot sort of comes to a head in, again, it's like a classic, like, farce dinner scene, basically. Yeah. They have, like, this sort of, like, tense exchange with the family and them, and there's all this comedy of manners stuff, right? Yep. And then Lee Marvin sort of comes out and says it and blows the whole thing up. Again, I thought that scene was pretty funny, but it's sort of out of place. (laughs) It's a totally different movie. Um, Yeah, it's a totally different movie. There's, like, seven different movies here. Yes, yes. And speaking of which... That sort of leads us to the climax, right? Oh, God. Uh, I don't think there's anything this, else to say. This, yeah, when it really just descends into utter absurdity. It's total madness. So I guess it sort of kicks off with, like, another thing that's been happening in the background <laughs> is that there have been advertisements for an upcoming bear and bull fight, <laughs> which <Yeah>. is <sighs> some real Mad Max shit, but also oh, yeah. probably something that did exist in the Wild West, I'm guessing. Yeah, you know, 100%. Like, it's one of the more believable elements of the film. Right, right. So the bear and bull fight is, like, happening. They have the bear, they have the bull, and <laughs> everyone's gathered in this, like, giant makeshift stadium, and the preacher from the beginning of the second act is there, and he's like, this town is going to be dragged into the earth, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, he falls through the earth into the tunnels, along with the yeah. bull... Right? Yeah. Zany things ensue, but like the whole town basically starts collapsing literally, into the tunnels. Yeah, just literally collapses to the ground. Yeah. And then it's just like chaos. Basically, the whole town is ruined. That's the ultimate thing. Lee Marvin is down there with the preacher running away from the bull. You know, I hadn't even thought about this, but it's kind of like the labyrinth, right? Like the, the myth of the labyrinth with the minotaur. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, um, so it's a nice... It's a nice uh, homage. You know. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. Doesn't, I don't think it's saying anything with that, but that might be <laughs> what they were going for. And I don't really remember what else happens. It's just a lot of shots of like... You know, some guy shaving, and then, like, the whole facade of the building falls off behind him. Like, very slapstick again. The only thing that's interesting about this is that, apparently, for this scene, they were concerned that they would only have one take. And so, they decided to build all of these actual tunnels underneath the entire town that they built, and put hydraulics underneath so that the buildings could go up and down. So when they're oh collapsing, God. they just like lower them down and then they could put them back up to take another take. So just another, yet another thing inflating the cost <laughs> of this extravagant musical. I mean, as wackadoo as the whole sequence is, no one is saying this film is not visually impressive. Yeah. And like this sequence is visually impressive. And especially when you consider like the era, like you know that it's all happening for real. It's just like, again, by this point, you're just sort of like, what the hell is going on yeah, here? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of it. Then basically, they resolve the whole relationship thing, which is, you know, Lee Marvin decides to leave. He's like, yeah, no, I was born under a wandering star. And he leaves. But not before first saying to partner, like, oh, I, I never got your real name. Right? And then he reveals it to be Sylvester Newell. Very important plot point. I'm really glad they cleared that up for me because I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, like, like you'd think that it was going to go somewhere and it's like right. something, something like Lincoln or like, you know, right. like that he's actually like a, the descendant of the president, you know, like, that it, no, it's just my yeah. name's Sylvester Newell. Yeah, that would have been great. Cool. That would have been great. 
Yeah. And then he and Elizabeth reconcile, and then they're like, oh, I wonder what Ben's going to get up to. Sort of like the yeah. classic, we got to set up the sequel. Yeah, perfect. Great. Great. We're <laughs> all waiting. to Electric Boogaloo. We're all waiting. I mean, again, it's a bummer of an ending considering, like, the sort of promise of the first act. It's just like, oh, oh, this is kind of interesting. Where is this going? And then it's almost like a sitcom where it's just like, now let's bring it back to, like, the status quo where it's like yeah. this couple in their cabin and they're just going to have a totally normal life. Well, it's kind of reminds me of the ending of um, The Principal and the Pauper. Where, like, they reveal that Seymour Skinner isn't actually Seymour Skinner, but then at the end of the episode, they basically run the real Seymour Skinner out of town, and then they're like, and we will never speak of this again, and, like, everything's back to normal. That's essentially how this movie ends. It's like, yep, okay, everything that was interesting, gone. Done. Yep. Gone. Yeah. It ends up being a morality tale, I guess, is just... But, like, it's so... The thing that I don't quite get is that the sort of morality tale part of it, where it's like... This town of sin is dragged into the earth and Clint Eastwood and Gene Seberg get away because maybe they're pure of heart or they want better or whatever. But like, it's all done with such slapstick and ridiculousness that it doesn't feel meaningful at all. Like, it's not like they were like, oh, wow, they really showed the horror of the West and, like, all of the sin in these towns. It's like, no, it actually seemed kind of, like, fun and wacky and then it just ended. So it's just like, and maybe part of that is the sort of like again the era in which it was made, where you you can't do the Deadwood thing of showing the like absolute debauchery and insanity of the Wild West, and like maybe that's what you need in order for the whole like morality thing to work. But like if you can't do it, then why? Right. But then also, but then if you want to do that too, like why market it to like the counterculture? It's like. You know, again, I long for the Chayefsky version of this because, like, there's a lot of Westerns that have the theme of, like, the closing of the frontier where it's like, okay, we had this way of life and that way of life is going away because civilization's coming and, like, how do we deal with that? Like, that would have been more interesting where they're like, you know, like, oh, shit. But again, if you... Civilization's coming and what we're doing isn't acceptable and how do we deal with that? Like, that's more interesting to me. If you're a young person in 1969 and you know that, like, Clint Eastwood has made these spaghetti westerns that sort of, like, take the western genre and turn it on its head and is, like, kind of unique and now now he's made this new thing and it's called Paint Your Wagon and it's being marketed and it's got, like, these really cool, like, posters that are tying into the counterculture and you, like, show up and this is what you see? Right, you'd be pissed off. You'd be like, what the hell did I just watch? Right, because, like, that's the thing is, like, not only is it bad, but it's sort of like an eat your vegetables kind of movie where it's like, yeah. where it's like, oh, we tricked you, like you countercultural kids. And now we're going to tell you how to be moral and like change your way of life. Like that's yeah. the ending, which is like, what the, f-? you know, like, yeah, no, it, it's, it, it, it's not good. Nate, this is one of the most bizarre movies I think I've ever sat through. There's no doubt in my mind that if I didn't have to watch this movie for this podcast, I would probably have turned it off after like 40 minutes. I would have given up on it. I would have just been like, this is not for me. I cannot decipher this. Mm -hmm. But like, that's the main thing that it has going for it is that it is so bizarre. It's not the kind of bad movie where you watch and you're like, Uh, I don't know, this just seems like schlock. 
It's like yeah, but it's also but it's not like burlesque where it's like it's so bad it's good. I don't know. Like, it's, I I kind of nah. Uh, it's too bore. It's too boring to be so bad it's good. Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't mm. find it that boring. I think that there's enough. Yeah, but you like westerns. That's eh, the difference. I don't think that's the difference. It's like there are enough punchlines and there's enough like crazy nonsense happening and like wild Maybe. shifts in tone and like crazy production values that I was pretty entertained for most of the time. Uh, but I guess part of it is that it's like, I think of something like burlesque, which is like, you know, the so bad it's good. But part of the charm of that movie is that you've got like, well, not to say that Cher isn't a good actor because like I'm pretty sure she has an Oscar. But like Christina Aguilera, love her. Acting is not her strong Like you've sure. got, it, part of the charm of it is like people who are out of their depths yeah. alongside like Stanley Tucci. <laughs> Whereas this movie, like there's none of that. All of the, the lead actors anyway. I'm not going to sit here and say that like Clint Eastwood doesn't know how to act. Like he's a decent actor and yeah. like Gene Seberg's a decent actor. And like it kind of lacks the sort of cheesiness to make it, charming and entertaining and for me anyway yeah um, it, it's it's missing like i would describe what you're talking about as camp and yes it's not campy and there's it's there too it's there, too straight to be campy. yeah there isn't quite that same level of camp where you can kind of like take some joy in it there's a bit of a bummer in like how badly people are performing here because they're people who, like, by all accounts, shouldn't be put in that position. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they're not out of their depth in a kind of fun way. They're out of their depth in a way where it's like, oh, man, it sucks to see, like, Clint Eastwood being put in this sort of position. Like, not that I think Clint Eastwood is an amazing actor, but I think, no. but it's like, he knows his lane, usually, and kind of does it, and this is not that, you know? But I think the thing, too, is that those campy, so bad it's good kind of stuff, like, again, using burlesque as an example there's something to save it like I'm, I, for all its faults of like the cheesy dialogue and not so great acting the musical numbers are really impressive sure. like yeah the, you've got great singers great dancers like they're well shot they're well edited like it looks great so that kind of saves it whereas like this doesn't even have that going for it you have these musical numbers that are just friggin dog turds where people basically just stand there and sing yeah and like some cross dissolves like it lacks anything to sort of like sink your teeth into and be like well at least there's this apart from the visuals but like that's not enough to save i mean i movie for me i think that there's some there's like some funny moments i think that a lot of them are kind of out of place but i laughed and i think that like lee marvin's performance is fun when he's on screen i'm kind of like okay fine yeah i'll go along with this and then, yeah, and then the production design. And, and also just, like, the overall insanity of how this movie feels. Like, it feels like nothing else I've ever watched, I think. Those are the things that it has going for it for me. But, yeah, I mean, it's also a bad musical. The whole, like, love story component is, like, non-existent. And there's just a hell of a lot of stuff going on. Too many plot points and too many competing plots, competing themes, all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of a mess. But... At the end of the day, what would you say? Would you uh, recommend this? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, not, not, not even a little bit. Uh, like, yeah. <clears throat> I think this is a classic case of The Simpsons did it better. At least with Planet of the Apes, it was the start of a new genre. It was yeah. the first of its kind. It was doing something different. Like, there's nothing standoutish about this. There's nothing unique about this. I so there's disagree. Nothing, it's a, <laughs> so it's a piece of shit. 
and how long? Is, I literally like it is long. It is it is an 154 minutes. Yes. I in my notes because we Nate and I watched this together, and you at one point were like. So far, I'm not hating it, to which I responded, yeah, well, there's still two hours and 30 minutes to go. I would not recommend this. Would you? This is bizarre because I said I would not recommend On the Town, but I'm going to say I do recommend this. I strongly disagree that there's nothing remarkable about this because I think it is absolutely bizarre. And, um, you know, I wouldn't recommend this to anyone. But I would say that, like, if... Yeah, I would not recommend this to anyone either. <laughs> no, I mean, if you if you like bad movies, like, if you enjoy watching big, crazy swings, I think this is that. And it has a lot of interesting stuff going on. It is long, but, like, you don't need to pay attention the whole time. But just, like, tune... Oh, no, that's true. Just, like, tune, tune in and out and, like, watch the crazy stuff happening because... There is stuff on the screen that, like, you'll never see in another movie. I genuinely would say that. Like, both, like, the scale of it, like, the scale of the music, even. Like, the orchestra and the vocals are, like, enormous. You know, the scale of the set is enormous. And then just, like, all the crazy tonal stuff going on. And Lee Marvin's performance and the weird moments of humor. Like, that all surprised me. And I was kind of uh, weirdly delighted by it. Even though it's definitely a bad movie. I mean, don't get me wrong. Maybe if there was like a roadshow presentation with free drinks, yes. then I Sounds could maybe, great. then maybe I, I think, could recommend. I think it, this could be but... this could be the next Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh dear God! <laughs> uh, well, on that note, should we do some extra credit? Yeah. Again, like it's tough because there's nothing quite like this, right? Yeah, no, I I racked my brain being like, what on earth could I recommend? Yeah. Because I didn't like it, so it's not like I can be like, if you like this, try this. But what will um, be the better version of this, or like a, a version that's more enjoyable? I mean, I haven't seen it, and I don't actually know if there's a film adaptation. But if you like western musicals, like there's Annie Get Your Gun. And the Will Rogers Follies, which is kind of like a Western musical, kind of, sort of. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I really, I guess, like, check out the Clint Eastwood spaghetti Westerns, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think all of the musicals that got Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood here, or did I say musicals or Westerns? You did say musicals, yeah. <laughs> there aren't a lot of them, but, you know. No, the Westerns that got them to these roles uh, are worth checking out. As you know, uh, I'm a huge fan of Sergio Leone. Yeah. And I love the Dollars Trilogy. So definitely I'd recommend those. But in terms of tone, this just popped into my mind. But The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, did you see that? Mm, I didn't see it because I heard it was like one of the lesser Cohen yeah. movies. But I, I wouldn't say that I thought it was astounding. I agree it's not one of their best. But in terms of the tone, it's probably the closest thing that I've ever seen to this. In, right. Because it just has that same like wild shifts of sort of like comedy and drama big like beautiful scenery and all of that and i think it even has a musical aspect if i'm not mistaken i think yeah there's a musical yeah. cowboy in it so yeah there is so yeah that would probably be the one that comes to mind for me i mean and i did mention it and i guess like if you like campy musical so bad it's good than like burlesque i mean i burlesque yeah. is couldn't be more further down the road from this but like yeah. that is a musical film that is 
I am a staunch supporter of it, but it is definitely in the so bad it's good department. Did we see that together? Yeah. I think we did. did. Yeah, in the theater. And it was a laugh out loud, super enjoyably bad, but wonderful, campy musical about a small town girl wanting to make it in the big old world of burlesque. (laughs) It's so, it's a joy. And I think it's also only like, it's maybe not 90 minutes, but it's definitely not 154 minutes. So. Right. That's a big difference in terms of whether you're willing to invest the time in something like this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, on that note, we should probably talk about where we're heading next week. Yeah. So next week, we'll be heading down to Texas with our friends Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds to the best little whorehouse in Texas. Yeah. We both actually know pretty much nothing about this movie yeah. beyond the fact that it is allegedly the inspiration for Bart After Dark. We're going to find out if that's actually true or not. <laughs> but it seems like, at least based on the poster, that it might be also in the sort of like burlesque, campy, so bad it's good department. I'm hoping. I'm hopeful. Uh, looks mighty interesting so looks like uh, it might be fun i'm excited for it yeah i think we're gonna have some fun and at the very least we get to see dolly and she's never been bad in anything and as far as i'm concerned amen so thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the springfield googleplex the movie podcast for simpsons fans brought to you by thatshelf.com if you enjoyed what you heard as always please leave us a review share this episode with simpson fans and film buffs in your life the reviews, every podcast says this, but like they really do make a huge difference. We are always trying to grow our audience, so we appreciate any and every bit of promotion that we get. So thank you. And until next time, Nate. See you around the plex. We'll see you around the plex. <laughs> you should keep that in. Gonna paint your wagon, gonna paint it good. We ain't bragging, we're gonna coat the wood. Ponderosa Pond!